Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, less than a third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. The difference is proper business training, which the Clark Hewlings Fund solves with educational fellowships, digital education, and in-person learning. You can have an exponential impact on working artists and our economy with a monthly donation that funds CHF's educational programming and this show. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. So give small at clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. That's clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. Our guest today is Dan Anthony. Dan is a sculptor and has been the business manager for Glenna Goodacre since 1987. And Glenna Goodacre is the sculptor who designed the Sacagawea Impression on Dollar Coins, the Vietnam Women's Memorial in Washington, D.C. on the National Mall, and the Irish Famine Memorial at Penn's Landing in Philadelphia. Dan, welcome to the show. Can you take a minute to just tell us a little bit more in your own words about yourself and what you do? Well... I'm an artist, and I work with lots of other artists, and I've done this since I was about 25 years old, and I've worked with Glenna for 30 years. I don't think we plan to work for 30 years together, but it just kind of worked out that way. Well, now, uh, Dan, tell me, what, what exactly does a business manager do? Can you break it down for us? Well, very simply, for an artist, a business person does all of the behind-the-scenes things that go into an artist's career. Well, the artist is in the studio making art. It's difficult for an artist to make art and to do all of the other business stuff. So that's what I did for Glenna. I've helped out some other, some artist friends by kind of mapping things out for them and helping them uh, get into shows or museums or collections or public art projects. So basically, I guess it's someone who can do the, the money work and the paperwork while the artist is making artwork. Now, Dan, uh, you've been working closely with Glenna as she's going through the process of retirement. Tell us about that experience. Well, um, she had a terrible illness in 2007, and she hasn't bounced back totally from that and certainly can't do a lot of big public art projects like we used to do. And so we actually started a few years ago, 2009, we sold her huge studio and her her giant house, and then placed some of her art collection. Um, she sold her Clark Hewlings painting that we had that she was very proud of, and downsized, and we continue to do that. And now she wants to really just, she wants to wrap things up and to be a grandmother and wife and friend. So we're really wrapping things up. We started an archive project. All of her coin material went to the Smithsonian in 2010. And then we started sending all of the rest of her archival material from 40 years as an artist, actually 50 years because she was a painter before, over to the Dickinson Research Center at the Western Heritage and Cowboy Museum in Oklahoma City. They have a massive underground archive there with many American artists, archival material included, including uh, James Earl Fraser, who designed the Buffalo Nickel and the the iconic End of the Trail sculpture, and his wife, Laura Garden Fraser, who designed the Washington Quarter that's still in use today. So then the last part of it, we closed down a rental studio we had 
we gave away the the clay and the tools, the sculpture stands, equipment, Glenna's sculpture and art books. We gave those last October to the New Mexico School for the Arts, which is an arts-based high school headquartered here in Santa Fe. So uh, tell me, Dan, Glenna is breaking all her molds, uh, which right. is kind of profound. So why exactly is she doing that? Well, it's unusual for a living artist to do that. It, it happens sometimes with some deceased artists. The molds are actually uh, taxable. The, I mean, the products of the molds are actually taxable by the IRS for estate taxes. So that's one consideration we had because it would still be, you know, millions of dollars worth of bronzes that we could potentially cast, you know, after she's deceased. But the the other part of it is to just sort of make clear that all the art that's out there was created under her supervision because there are some posthumous artists work out there that are kind of murky. And so we wanted that to be very clear and we wanted to just stop. Okay, that makes sense. So, uh, but now most living artists don't actually retire. They work their whole lives. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, um, sculpture is pretty physical, and a lot of sculptors, they do slow down at the end. I know Picasso, I think, was he 94, and he was working on a self-portrait the day he died. But sculpture is kind of a different deal. It's very physical, and it's, and it's very demanding. And so as as sculptors age, they, they really do kind of wind down quite a bit. So tell me, what exactly would you consider to be the challenges to managing an artist's affairs after they retire? Well, it's really difficult. Uh, well, Glenna has been actually unable to travel very much or make public appearances or do very much public speaking or be filmed. She used to be great on camera. She was a great public speaker. I mean, she has spoken to crowds. She spoke to 20,000 people in New Orleans once, and we were guessing there were 40,000 people at the unveiling of the Vietnam Memorial. She was a great public speaker. So having her out of the game made it very difficult to promote for me to promote her work because you lose that star quality that you need at an event or, or for filming or for a news clip or to generate, you know, more promotion or press. So it, it's kind of like working for a deceased artist because you don't have your star around anymore. And that's what, you know, that's what happened to us after her illness in 2007. Well, you know, you've had a parallel career with Glenna. Uh, and you, you are a sculptor in your own right. So uh, is there anything you wish you had done differently throughout that parallel career? Well, I wish I would have had time to do more of my own projects, but now I can do more of those. Um, I did help some... If if we were just too busy to do something, then I would farm it out to some friends. Some smaller projects I could do myself. But we we when I mapped out a business plan for Glenna's career, part of that was to apply for a lot of big public art projects and and my target was to go east of the Mississippi because Glenna was pretty much a regional artist. So we applied for all of these big projects and we got all of them but one. And so then uh, it probably took 25 years to finish all of those. A lot of them took years. The Vietnam project took four or five years to complete the Irish Memorial Project, almost 10 years. 
some projects the buildings weren't ready or the funding wasn't in place or you know they went into kind of a holding pattern but we did a lot of public art we really did and then uh i wish i would have been able to do some of my own but I'll, but i'll do that now i can do that this is a definitely a, a full career you know it's it's really hard to imagine doing both the Irish Famine Memorial, the Vietnam's Women Memorial, and some of the other things Glenna has done. Do you feel that she's pretty satisfied at the end of her career with what she's achieved? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. She gets a lot of fan mail and a lot of corroboration for uh, for the work she's done. And she's done pieces that are very special to uh, to groups of people, to the Irish, to veterans, coin collectors art collectors. So she's, I would, she's deeply gratified and she'd be the first one to tell you that. Now, I should sort of say to our audience that Glenna has collaborated with the heirs of the Clark Hewlings estate, Mary and Elizabeth Hewlings, to create a bronze relief that is signed by both artists, uh, posthumously by Clark Hewlings. And there are 25 of these really unique pieces being offered with the proceeds going to support the mission of the Clark Hewlings Fund which is bringing substantive business training to working artists. And this is a particularly unusual confluence of events because Glenn is retiring. This will be her final work. There will be no more Glenn at Goodacre pieces or foreseeably new Clark Hewlings pieces ever. And, uh, and so to our audience members, you can actually view this piece at clarkhewlingsfund.org slash relief, as in boss relief, clarkhewlingsfund.org slash relief. Uh, it's phenomenal. Dan, that she's choosing to support the mission of the fund this way. And of course, this bronze is an interpretation of the Clark Hewlings painting helping to push. Why exactly did Glenna create this work? Why why this work also in particular, the, the helping to push piece? Well, um, Glenna adored Clark. Uh, they, they were very, very close friends. Um, she met him, uh, we're guessing, in the early 70s in Texas. In I think post Texas, he was having an exhibition there, and she she was a fan of his already, and went to meet him and talk to him. And he was, of course, you know, very gracious and helpful and eloquent, and they became fast friends. And so then, after Clark's death, Elizabeth wanted Glenna to be involved in the Clark Hewlings Fund somehow, and Glenna couldn't travel anymore, so she couldn't be on the board or 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 do any kind of promotion or traveling or any kind of thing like that. And so they hit upon this idea of trying to create a bas-relief from one of Clark's drawings. And so Glenna and I agreed to do that before we actually saw the drawing we were going to get. (laughs) And so then Elizabeth sent out this drawing of the donkeys helping to push, which was from one of Clark's trips to Egypt. And Glenna actually owns a, another drawing, a different drawing of Clark's, uh, an original drawing from that same trip to Egypt, ironically, is in her collection. But anyway, so we had this drawing and we looked at it and we kind of, and Glenna said, wow, you know, that's really sketchy. And uh, because it's a real fast ink wash drawing, probably done on location. And so then, but Clark's paintings were very, very tight. And so if we're going to channel Clark into a bas-relief, then we need to we need to hit in between the looseness of the drawing and then the tightness of his paintings. And so it was very hard. It was hard for Glenna. She did as much as she could do, and then 
we had a lot of trouble with uh, with the donkey's head, and so finally I borrowed some books from Elizabeth, and I went online, found some donkey pictures, and then so I helped her with that. I helped her with the donkey part, and then and then we had it, and then we did it. And in the relief, it's unusual in that there's a lot of line in that relief because Clark used a lot of line in his painting. There's a lot of edge line. And so all of his paintings started out with a very, very, very meticulous drawing. And that's how we started this relief, was with a really a very tight drawing, as tight as we could get it, given the looseness of the sketch, you know. And so you'll see a lot of line in this that I think gives it a unique quality that's kind of a, that's a Clark Ewing's quality. I think we were, you know, I think we succeeded in channeling him into that bas relief. Well, so, yeah, for a final project, it sounds like uh, every bit as much of a challenge in many ways is doing something like Sacagawea. And of course, you know, working small is its own challenge. So uh, quite impressive. Yeah, Glenna's not necessarily really great at working small. She's, you know, she's, her work has a lot of movement and motion and texture to it. And so uh, she's usually more content with something of a little bigger scale. So doing doing that small tight relief, yeah, that was a it was a challenge for us. It really was. Well, if I tried to do something, uh, as long as uh, any given part of it was in two separate states, uh, you'd be okay. It would look like I was an artist. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, <laughs> I envy anyone that can draw a coherent picture that I can see without driving to see the other half. <laughs> right. Well. I mean, you might think it's easy that, you know, if you have a drawing translating that into almost three dimensions, you'd think that would be an easy thing, and it's not. No, I I don't think it's an easy thing, but, you know, maybe somebody out there <laughs> does. But, well, so let's go back to the, the show. And, of course, you know, just to mention again for our audience, if you want to see what Dan is talking about, it's clarkhealingsfund.org slash relief. And there are only 25 of these numbered pieces in existence, and, and that's it. So um, yeah, let somebody know that is looking for something uh, different, rare, and uh, and loves this kind of work. So, But Dan, as a part of Glenna's retirement, you're working with Jack Morris and Brad Richardson and Michael Frost to have uh, the final Glenna Goodacre auction through the Scottsdale Art Auction. And uh, I'm curious, what has gone into preparing for this event? Oh, my God. Um, well, uh, a huge amount of work. First of all, this was this was my idea because we had, Glenna had a, a really still, after downsizing, still had a big personal collection of her own work. And then we had a pretty significant inventory of larger works that were kind of scattered around the country in, in galleries and exhibitions. And so the first part of it was identifying all the pieces for the auction, and we really wanted to get pieces that were special, that were either the end of the edition, you know, the only one left, or maybe there was only one made, or there was something special about it, something like that. So identifying those out of all the inventory, that was a big challenge. And then moving all of that art into one spot in Scottsdale took months. I mean, we still have one more sculpture and then two-dimensional work to get out there, but 114 lots, you know, one of them weigh, one of them is 12 and a half feet long, it's seven feet high and weighs 2,000 pounds. And the big Sacagawea, she weighs probably 1,500 pounds. And then there's a sculpture of Ronald Reagan, weighs 1,000 pounds. 
those came from every direction, north, south, east, and west, converging all around the country, converging at Scottsdale. And so we had trucks and trailers and rental trucks and movers. And so identifying the art took months, and then getting it there took months. So we've been at this for over a year, and it's finally, finally happening on April 6th. Now, uh, I wonder, is any of this work, for just for our listeners' uh, benefit, because obviously this is an audio podcast, is any of this work available uh, online to see in any of the promotional materials or, you know, sort of scenes from the upcoming auction? Is there a website we can look at to, to sort of see some of the stuff that's been trucked in or being trucked in? Oh, sure. Um, I don't think we have actual shots of, of trucking and lifting, but, but the work itself you can see at www.glennagoodacreauction.com. Okay, that's excellent. So uh, glennagoodacre.com is the main website, and then glennagoodacreauction.com would be a place you could go see this work. And right. as you say, there's, um, there's over 114 lots, so uh, quite a bit of work to see there. Right. Uh, and including... you know, I think Western Art Collector Magazine may have online some of the photos of moving those huge pieces with the crane into place. I think they might have some of those in their online magazine, Western Art Collector. Well, that's good to know, you know, because uh, as a, uh, a marketing guy for in my other life, you know, the first thing I, I think about is somebody's going to want to Instagram this, you know, let's get those <laughs> cranes over here. So, right. yeah, um, I'm glad to hear it, you know, and for all of our listeners out there on Instagram, you got to come visit us, the Clark Keeling's Fund on Instagram and let us know you're there. So uh, I want to question uh, you about this is, Dan, is she keeping any of the work? I get that we have 114 lots here, but is she keeping anything for herself or her family? Well, the family, um, they have received pieces uh, over the years that they liked for their collections. So, so the family's pretty well set with what, you know, what they have wanted, what they've liked, their favorites from her output. So they're, the family's good. And then she has a few pieces around her house, not many. Not as many as we had um, when she had her huge house and, and studio on the north side of town here in Santa Fe. She has a few, but she is, she's parting with her very, very first sculpture from 1969, a little seven-inch ballerina sculpture of her daughter, Jill, who's, who's now married to Harry Connick Jr. And then a marble head. We did a handful of marble works in Italy. I used to live in Italy, and I had a postgraduate grant to study in Italy before I was foundry director at Shadoni Foundry and before I worked for Glenna, so I wanted her to to try her hand at marble sculpture. And so she had one marble sculpture she she kept for years that we never exhibited or or marketed or anything that is the head of a little girl called April. And so she's giving that up. So she has a few pieces in her house but not not anywhere near what she had. Now I mean, is it normal for a living artist to sell so much of their remaining work? Well, I don't know how many pieces were in that Damien Hurst auction, but um, I think a lot. But, yeah, I think it is. Well, come on now. Everybody wants to get rid of their Damien Hurst. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> hey, a, he broke the record in that guy. auction. And, you know, uh, for, for better or for worse, he kept on making art, and we're stopping. 
Well, fair, fair enough. So let me ask you about, you, you mentioned the bronze foundry. What made you move from managing a bronze foundry and managing your own sculpting career to being a business manager in the first place? Well, um, it wasn't really intentional. Uh, I, I was going to, I, I had worked at, I'd been foundry director at Shidoni for 10 years. And it's a big, it's a big art bronze foundry. At one point, it had 60 employees and produced a lot of really big sculptures around the country, both abstract and representational. So I wanted to move on from that, do some other stuff, maybe do my own work. And I mapped out this business plan for Glenna in 1987. And her career, she had just made a couple of life-size sculptures. She had made a nude and a Pueblo Indian that were life-size. And so so she was starting to take off. And she had moved from Boulder to Santa Fe. And so I, I mapped out this business plan for her. And then I, I jumped in and started helping her, you know, do some proposals for public sculptures. I also have a graphic arts background. So I helped make these really beautiful storyboards and proposals and scale models and things. So then those started to come back and come in. And so then I was helping her more and more. And then her... She she was more and more prolific, and she just she needed more and more help. And so then, I I quit the job at Chidoni and just I thought I would help her for a while and then move on. And then we just got all of these projects, and so then we just decided we would work as hard as we could for as long as we could, and then and then just jump out. But we didn't think it would it would be so long. We didn't think it'd be thirty years. That is a, an incredibly long time. Let me ask you this. So, you know, at the Clark Hewlings Fund, part of our core mission is to train working artists with business skills and business education so that they can manage uh, the business side of their art. But more importantly um, than managing it is being able to control it and own it themselves so that they're not essentially servants of somebody and and have to sort of do what they're told, right. almost like employees in their own art practice, which is the case in, in many cases. I'm not trying to knock some of the arrangements that people have with galleries where there's 50, 60 percent commissions taken, but it is a huge hit. And when you're sort of, hey, go to this show, you can't have this mailing list, don't do your own show, give us half your work. At some point, you know, the fastest growing movement among artists is to sell directly to the public, to sell online. This is also the fastest growing movement among uh, art buyers. Uh, so here, here's the question I want to ask you, Dan. We're equipping them with business skills. And at some point, they will reach, if they apply these skills, they will reach a level of scale where they can afford to hire a business manager, where they potentially could simply do nothing but operations and do the work. And uh, at that point, should every artist do that? When, when you scale enough, should every artist hire a business manager? And if so, what can they expect it to cost and what are the benefits? Well, the cost, you know, that's, that's all over the place. Um, and uh, for my own arrangement, Glenna had, she had had bad luck with, with employees in the past. And so she was a little nervous about having an employee. So my deal with her was and is that if I made, you know, enough money to, to pay for like health insurance and, you know, just some basic stuff, then I would work for a, a sales commission. And uh, I'm kind of a sales commission kind of guy anyway. 
And so, you know, if I didn't perform, then there wasn't any, then in theory, you know, there wouldn't be any income. But I did perform. And so um, we followed my plan and we did incredible exhibitions, huge exhibitions. And we, we branched out into more and more galleries at one point. She had large amounts of work in over a dozen galleries around the United States, and I was keeping track of all of those because she was in the studio mashing clay, as she says. And so, and then, you know, if we get behind, I'd go in and mash clay too, and uh, we'd get friends to mash clay. So, so I still, I got to do a little bit of that too, but the cost is a tough one. I mean, it, it depends on, on the art and how much the art sells for and how prolific the artist is. But I always encourage artists to farm out as much of that paperwork and accounting stuff as they can afford to do to free up time in the studio. Because without time in the studio, then you're, you know, you don't have anything to market. And you need to be, especially when you're starting out, you really need to be as prolific as you can be because, uh, because you need a body of work to, um, to kind of solidify your your situation, so it's it's the studio work is really important, and you know the business work is important too. All the promotion and keeping track of things and the financial stuff is important, also. But a lot of artists, frankly, are terrible at that. I mean, just really terrible. So if there's any part of that they can farm out early on, and then I encourage them to do it. Okay, so tell me, um, you're saying that at some point they might get a business manager, they might, uh, if they can afford something early on, they might have sort of a partial relationship. Um, but has business-mindedness helped Glenna's art practice or her role as essentially the CEO in her own art business? Oh, sure. I mean, we had a, you know, we had a board of directors and, you know, and we we would have, we would have sales goals. You know, we had... While I was working with her, we had two, three million dollar years. That means that that, that year the galleries sold four and a half million dollars worth of work. So we had, you know, we had. It's good to have uh, a target and something to shoot for, and you know, and if you're in a professional setting and you're setting goals and you're, you know, you're looking for new marketing areas and all that, you know, all of that. It's just if you're just you know professional about it, it. I think you you can't fail. Dan, I want to pivot a bit and uh, ask you a little bit about the art market in general. Now, you've been in the business for a long time. Has the art market changed? Uh, I think it's going to be kind of an obvious question, so I'm really asking how. Has the art market changed from when you started? What was it like back then versus now? Well, um, Glenna and I came in in the late, uh, she started in you know 1969 and into the 70s and into the 1980s. There was an incredible boom of art, an art boom in the United States. And then into the 90s, headed toward the millennium, there was a huge boom in public art projects around the country. So the market was was fabulous for artists, and you almost couldn't go wrong. And and I, I first met Glenn in 1981 up in Denver at a show up there. And uh, 1981 is the year that Clark held the record for selling a painting by a living artist in the in the United States when he sold a lidoscope. And it was just it was boom. It was it was just boom years. Uh and so the market was profuse and there were galleries everywhere and new galleries were opening, lots of public art projects. 
Reluctantly, in 1995, I was convinced to do a website for Glenna. And I was very skeptical, and I said, oh my gosh, you know, people who are going to buy $100,000 sculptures, they're not going to be out surfing the net. I think this is crazy, but, um, but let's try it. Let's see what happens. I, I love to be wrong, and boy, was I wrong about that. Uh, one of our early sales was a quarter of a million dollar sculpture sold to a guy from Brazil, and he never saw it until it showed up in a massive crate about the size of a one-car garage in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So uh, we were often running on the Internet, and that I think that's, that's a lot of the future for art. You still have to have events. You still have to have galleries. You still have to have museums. Everything can't be on the Internet, but it's a great tool and it's a great way to reach people because it's hard now to reach people anymore. I mean, not as many people read magazines or newspapers or even watch television. I mean, it's just it's very difficult to reach reach out and reach people and find them and find collectors. And the Internet is a great boon to, uh, for artists for that. But it can't be the only thing you do. I mean, you won't you won't make it if you're just on the Internet. You've got to be out in the real world. Beating the bushes also. Well, I, I wonder about that. I think a lot of it's shifting. You know, uh, the most common watchword in digital marketing these days is that the distinction between the real world and the virtual one isn't there anymore. Uh, but that remains to be seen. The You know, what we are seeing is uh, a lot of movement of the art buyers. Uh, for them, there's for the new millennials especially, there's no no difference. Fifteen percent of them prefer to buy art online or through a marketplace online or a website, which is double those who prefer to buy it in in person an auction. You know, at seven percent, and even Sotheby's is obviously the hallmark, uh, the sine qua non of auction houses. Um, about 3.6% of their auction total now happens online. So I'm wondering, Dan, uh, what do you think is happening now with the preponderance of these online art markets? Has the move online changed how you're going to approach what is essentially a brick and mortar auction? And to the degree that you see people sort of still patronizing brick and mortar auctions, which obviously still in large numbers they do. What do you think keeps them coming back to that in-person experience? Well, auctions are thriving right now. As galleries kind of look like they're kind of receding, auctions are just are thriving. And, you know, Heritage Auction, for example, that started out just selling coins, now they sell every conceivable kind of art just because there was such a, a demand in such a market. But there's nothing as exciting. Uh, I mean, some shows, I've been to, I've been to artist shows where where the new work was very exciting and being there with the artist was exciting and and people had to draw numbers in order to buy the art. Um I know Clark is Clark was involved in a lot of those where there you know there were only so many paintings and people had to draw do draw a drawing for them. And that was very exciting, but an auction is just downright exciting it really is and to be there in person there's just nothing like it. Well, I would think that's even doubly true with some of Glenna's work. I mean, uh, when you're talking about trucking in statues that need a crane to move them, <laughs> it's got to be, you know, when that's the same size of photograph as the photograph of a coin online, yeah, I can see the excitement of the, the in-person auction being a huge draw after all. But I, I've caught on what you said. Um, you sort of said that, Gallery to the degree that galleries are sort of 
fading in some way that that auction houses are doing better. Is that what you meant? And if so, why why are galleries fading? It looks like that's what's happening to me. And and I don't know if that's if that's an online phenomenon. If so many people buy art online that galleries are are struggling, or if they've if they've run out of great artists. I mean, there are lots of young great artists coming up, so I don't think it's that. And I don't know uh, if people aren't moving around like they used to into the retail experience. A lot of galleries, you know, there are galleries here in Santa Fe that are thriving. They're on Canyon Road. But that's a destination, and there's, you know, I think those des- destination galleries, I think, will always do well. And, you know, when people are on vacation and they're feeling great and they're loose with their money and then they and they get something to take back home and remember their trip, I think that will always happen. But I don't know. I think there are getting to be fewer galleries here in Santa Fe, and uh, I noticed I just came from Scottsdale. Look like there are fewer galleries in Scottsdale than there used to be. So I don't know if people are, or I know people are buying more art online, but are they buying all their art online? I I just don't know exactly what's happening. But just just being here on the outside looking in, it looks like um, there are fewer galleries and more auction houses. Well, of course, um, I mentioned in a, a previous show we did with Peter Trippi, the um, editor of Fine Art Connoisseur, that you know I'd seen some writing uh, in the New York Times about galleries having trouble uh, and essentially finding that they need to not only move out of high gallery concentration areas in some cases, um, but also they're finding they need to resort to sort of interactive ticket selling shows the way museums have. So um, a lot of them now are moving to places like in New York City on the Upper East Side instead of some of the other art districts. And they're what they're doing is selling uh, museum-like tickets and and, uh, letting people pay for admission and come in. And uh, they have sort of a a staged um, exhibit of the art. And uh, they're doing this to um, cover their costs and also to replace some of the disengagement that's probably happening with museums. Actually, I think we talked about that in a a different show about uh, museum trends. But I wonder, um, since you bring up galleries, you know, often sculptures uh, create editions of their work. So there, you know, there's going to be 25 of any one piece, for instance, that are at different galleries. They're spread out among different galleries. Uh, when that happens, does working with multiple galleries produce some surprise challenges? Has that been something you've faced? Um, no. Um, one of the things we were always really careful about was making sure that everybody, that the price on the piece was the same in every gallery if there were multiple pieces in galleries because you don't want any surprises like that and then um um not really i mean um the worst thing that would happen probably people see something they go back and it's gone somebody's bought it so then they have to buy it from another gallery uh, that you know that happened a lot countless times but i don't think there were any we tried to not have any surprises so when you do that, when you try to make sure that the galleries are all sort of charging the same thing instead of whatever they want, right. uh, is that in order to enforce a perceived value? Is that your goal? Right, right. And um, and we were very, very. Uh, that was a big priority for us to make sure that there wasn't any kind of discrepancy in the prices. And the other challenge was as the edition sold out, 
And some of Glenna's editions sold very quickly. As the editions sold out, there were fewer pieces available, and so they were more valuable. So we would raise the price of the pieces as the editions sold out. So then we would keep keep on track with the galleries to make sure that they had the newest price on the pieces in the gallery. And that was a that was a big effort. And I had we had a a wonderful bookkeeper and office manager who helped me ride herd on that because that was a huge, almost full time job. Well, let's stay on this topic of editions for a second, you know, because obviously the the Glenna Goodacre piece that is collaborative posthumously with Clark Hewlings, there's only 25 of them. So it's a limited edition. And I understand, of course, that Glenna is breaking all of her molds. If you are just now tuning in uh, to the this part of the show and missed the earlier part, then uh, you may not have heard that. But she's doing the rather radical stuff of breaking all her molds. You know, we talked earlier about um, digital technology in the form of the internet. Do you think that 3D printing uh, could be replacing the mold of the future, where instead of having a a, a bunch of uh, molds that are physical molds, what you have is essentially a program on a thumb drive that uh, tells the 3D printer <laughs> what what shape the edition is supposed to look like and spits it out. Have you have you pondered this at all? I've seen some pretty good 3D printing of, of sculptures for various various purposes, either scaling down pieces or reproducing pieces for one thing or another. And you know they're pretty good. They're getting there. It's getting there. I think it's uh, still not cost effective yet. It's you know especially in metal or stone, it's just not it's not cost effective yet. But it's possible down the down the road that it, that could be a way of producing sculptures that, you know, that look, you know, that look like something. Bronzes are a lot of, there are hundreds of hours of hand finishing and work that go into making bronzes. And they haven't, they haven't come up with a technology, for instance, um, a, a, a mold you can pour metal into. The molds we have are used for making wax impressions that are then cast in metal. But as far as having a, uh, uh, in the industry, they'd be called a take-apart mold that you can just pour metal into. With the exception of pewter, that just isn't happening. So 3D printing, yeah, it's possible. But I think I think that there's going to be a cost. There's going to be a cost thing there, and I think there's going to be you know a, a kind of a kind of sterility that doesn't happen with handmade sculptures. Uh, of course, someone will do it. You, you're mentioning Damien Hirst. The day there will be a Damien Hirst of the future that does a sculpture in living hamburger or something. And and I, not, I hope not, but someone if it can be thought of, someone will do it. Oh, yeah, because um, it's it's getting really creative now. Uh, they're yeah. using 3D printing for food and and a variety of things, extra limbs. Right. Um, oh yeah. Well. G- Going back to this um, issue of having multiple galleries, I just want to ask one more question about that. The, the galleries um, all charging the same price. Well, now you're doing this auction, this final auction. Is there a role in, in this for all of those different agents that you've had over time? Well, many of them are, are going to participate. They're going to bid on works for their collectors. I mean, they're, we have encouraged them to, to participate with us in the auction. So I know three or four of our of our galleries and our dealers are going to be there bidding for collectors or bidding online because the auction will be live online um, or on the phone. So the dealers are still in the game. 
and there's still work in the galleries. Uh, we just tried to find unique things for the auction or special things. So, yeah, they'll be they'll be involved. Let me ask you one more question about being a business manager uh, before we kind of go into the fun part of our show and wind down. Uh, do you have advice for other art business managers out there? Um, so say there's an artist and they're stepping into very similar shoes. Is there something that you wish you'd known when you first started or that you would give them as advice? Well, I would say, and I've been very lucky with this, uh, Glenn and I, you know, if you're managing an artist, it's not good to have the artist out there making deals while you're making deals. You know, you want everything to come from one source. And that's been a real challenge for for other artists I know that have had assistance and business people in the past is that uh, the artist is out there and they're, you know, they're used, they were used to making their own deals. Now they have this business manager who should be doing all the deals. And so then it can create some confusion and murkiness in the market. So you need to have just one source for everything. And that should be the business person. And a lot of artists are happy to turn that over to someone else and not have to deal with it. Yeah, so I'm hearing a couple of hallmarks of business, which are division of labor and a clear division, of, a clear distinction of responsibilities. So, with with Glenna's retirement, what's next for you? What what immediately is on your agenda? Well, there, um, I've got a couple of public art projects uh, that I'm already working on. There are a lot more out there, and uh, I've been recently in touch with some friends who are out in the public art world. You know doing large-scale large outdoor sculptures. There's also a big portrait market, and I like doing that. I just did a portrait bust. That's in my photo that I sent to you, portrait bust of a, a really incredible guy. And uh, I love doing that. Portraits are great. I, I ended up just, it was a fluke, but I ended up making portraits of three dogs individually, I mean separately. Just, just It just happened that way. So there's a lot of work out there, and I'm looking forward to doing that and to, to, to see what kind of fun things are happening out there. Do you have your own website or .com you can tell us about we can point people to? You know what? I don't. I haven't. I've been kind of consumed with the auction. I took my website down, and my, my wife and I, she's a photographer, and we had we also had a photography program in Tanzania. And then I had Glenna's stuff, and we had, we just had too many, too many irons in the fire, and so I took my own website down. She took hers down, and we cut back on some of the email addresses we have, and and my Facebook page. I don't, you know, I don't. I, I go in a couple times a year, or four times a year, maybe, and just post a thank you for everybody posting stuff. But I will. That's that's the first thing I'm going to do in the next couple of months is get my website back up and get the newer pieces there. And, and there are a couple of new projects that I'll be doing. I'll get something about those in there and get that out on the internet, generate some press for myself and jump in. So Dan, is there anything else that you want to tell us about the upcoming Scottsdale auction that we haven't said? Well, um, it's a spectacular, it's a retrospective exhibition um, of Glenna's work from her very first piece to almost the last. I mean, Clark's Relief is the last thing, but there's a very, very late piece in there. So it's a big, big retrospective exhibition, and it's a big, exciting auction. It's a huge event, and it's wrapping up the career of of one of America's favorite favorite sculptors. So it's a it's an unusual and 
I think it's going to be a really a really exciting event and real unusual, and the scale of it is just so amazing, too. You've been listening to the Thriving Artists Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. For more information on Glenna Goodacre and Dan Anthony, visit glennagoodacre.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. And to sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Dan. It's been really great having you. Thank you.